All right, I think we are live. What's up, Mike? How you doing, buddy? I'm good, man. This is always the part where we pretend like we didn't talk for a few minutes beforehand. So, uh, Fair how are you? Everything good? Uh, yeah, I'm hanging in there, man. It's a, it's another another crazy week as usual, but I'm doing all right. How are you? Dude, I'm good. I'm I'm really glad that we're able to talk. We finally got this uh we got this scheduled, ready to happen. Uh, before we dive in, can you just do me a favor and and introduce yourself? Mike, Mike is a, an old friend of mine, a really incredible, not just coach, but individual, really great human. So could you just uh, introduce yourself, tell a little bit about yourself, who you are, tell them where they can follow you on social media, and uh, and just tell them a little about yourself. Absolutely. So I've been fortunate enough to be a strength and conditioning coach for 18 years. And over that time, I've worked with athletes of all ages, not even just athletes, but general population. I mean, I've worked with anywhere from elementary school, middle school, high school, collegiate, uh, professional athletes from, you know, UFC, Major League Baseball, NFL, MLB, you name it. Um, And I do a lot of post rehab work. So we get a lot of referrals from local orthopedic doctors and physical therapists that send us clients over so we can bridge, bridge the gap from you know, uh, physical therapy into personal training and and getting them back on the the court or the field or uh, whatever they're doing. So yeah, I've been doing this for 18 years. Um, You know, my first job, I I started off with really no experience. I was an intern. I went to school for sociology. I went to school to be a police officer. And um, yeah, so when I was done with school, I was taking the civil service exam and there just wasn't any spots open, even though I scored really well. So I was like, oh, man, like, I don't know if I'm going to have the opportunity right now to get into the police force. So at that point, I played college soccer. And one of my dreams at that point was to play professional soccer. And I had a bunch of friends with the revolution. And I started training with these guys. And I just got friendly with them. And I ended up trying out for a a PDL team based out of Rhode Island, made the team. But then I realized it was like $5,000 a year for like five (laughs) nights a week. And I had to drive like an hour and a half each way. So I was like, you know what? like cool. Like in my mind, I had the opportunity, but I was like, all right, this is the juice isn't worth the squeeze. So at that point I became friendly with the owner of the facility and we were just talking shopping. He's like, Hey, do you ever think about being a, you know, strength coach, personal trainer? And I was like, well, yeah, but I'm like, I don't have the, the formal education, man. Like I, you know, I used to lift weights in my basement with my old Sears and Roebuck, like weight set made out of like, you know, concrete and plastic covering and stuff like that. But I didn't have any formal education. So I'd had to intern for a year I was there at six in the morning, stayed till seven or eight o'clock at night. And I just worked my tail off for six or seven years. At that point, I had another opportunity to move on to be a director of personal training at a larger facility, was there for a little bit of time. And and then I just realized, listen, it's time to to open my own facility. And we opened our gym skill of strength, which is located in Chelmsford, Mass, uh, 10 years ago in April. So it's been a, it's been a great, it's been a crazy ride, man. We've expanded twice. We started off at 2,300 square feet, and then we went to 5,000. We're about 7,400 right now. Um, potentially going to expand again just with this whole COVID thing right now. Um, it's uh, it's a little bit crazy. So work at the gym. I run the gym. You know, I'm here three, four days a week, and I run it with, with my wife, Amanda, and uh, I couldn't do it without her, man. I'd, I'd probably have lots of cool equipment and no money in the bank. Uh, <laughs> and then in addition, in addition to uh, – Running the gym, I also teach and lecture for Strong First as a senior instructor, and I'm a lead instructor for functional movement systems. So, um, if I'm not at the gym, I'm always doing stuff like that, or you know, working with my combat athletes, et cetera. So, that's my uh, almost 19 year career in a nutshell. But uh, I'm still learning every day, man, and I'm still trying to figure this whole fitness industry out. So, yeah, me as well, man. So, so just quickly again for anyone who's like in the Boston area, name of the gym and, and where you're located, Justin, and even for people who might just go visit because it's it's one of my favorite gyms in the world. It's like you have an incredible facility. Thank you. Yeah, it's called Skill of Strength. We're located in Chelmsford, Massachusetts. Um, we're in an old mill building. It's a beautiful facility, with a lot of exposed wood and brick. Um, yeah, so you can look us up there. And as far as uh, social media goes, Mike Perry. And then Coach Mike Perry on Instagram, not to be confused with Platinum Mike Perry, who's a <laughs> UFC fighter, who we always get, like, I get DMs all the time. And you're like, you're Mike Perry. I'm like, well, different which Mike one are you talking? <laughs> yeah, which one are you talking about? So Very you know, different it's, it's a, personalities. Very different. <laughs> little, little, little different. Him, him and I, uh, we don't exactly, you know, believe in the same things, I don't think. Yeah. But, uh, but I've never had the conversation. But he's got a great name. Well, both very close with your spouses, to be fair. He had his, he had his girlfriend or wife corner him in a fight. Corner- which, and he won the fight, which is pretty crazy. <laughs> Dude, 
it's hey, listen, a fighter's a fighter, right? I mean, they yeah. can they they'll be able to figure it out, and it doesn't matter to be honest. A lot of times, because in the UFC you get three corners, so a lot of the times, as long as you have your two main ones, like a lot but of the times, she was people the only in, one. She was the only is, one in this corner. Yeah, you're right. And it was, was so bananas. funny listening during the fight because you know they go in the corner, and it was just, it was great. I actually enjoyed it because she was just encouraging. She was like, "You've got this, honey. You're doing great." And they're yeah. like, "What's technical advice?" There was like, "All right, you got to do this." It was just completely encouragement. Yeah. That's all it was. It was great. And honestly, and honestly, if you don't, it, I re I respect that because. She knows that she doesn't have the skill set to talk about, you know, get the underhooks or right, you know, go right. to here. She just is like, do your best, honey. Yep. And and honestly, there's something cool about that, right? Like I I, I actually didn't see that clip, but I, I remember hearing about it. Her just being like, you got this. I love you. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> it was it's awesome. like, okay, hey, if that, hey, whatever, man, maybe that's what he needs, right? Maybe that's the encouragement that he needs in the corner. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so so anyway, um, I I know. I also want to hear about what's going on in your life right now. Uh, I know one of the reasons we wanted to hop on this call is so we could bring more awareness to to what you're going through because a lot of people have gone through it and and unfortunately will go through it. But uh, talk to me about what's going on in your life right now. Yeah. So on February 26th of this year, which was uh, uh, two days before my birthday, I was diagnosed with colon cancer. Um, I had went in for a colonoscopy because I was having some you know, some issues from my GI, you know, from, from just everything GI related to going to the bathroom, et cetera. I mean, I'm, I'm not afraid to share, you know, at first it just started off with, and this is, I'll be honest with you, this is probably going on for like a, almost two years. And I just kind of ignored it. I just equated it to stress and everything else. But I noticed I was going to the bathroom and I was just always in the bathroom. I mean, not like a couple times a day, like 10, 12, 15 really? times a day going to the bathroom. And every time I went to the bathroom, I, I'd go to the bathroom, but I never felt relieved. I always felt like something was going on. And, and I'll be honest, it was just a lot of diarrhea. And was there, was there blood it, as well or no? Towards the end, it started to be in more blood intermittent. And then I was like, okay, because I'm thinking it's COVID. We just got through COVID. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm stressed to the gills. I got two kids. It was a crazy year for everybody. And I'm thinking it's just all stress related, right? Because I figured I'd go in, I'd get a colonoscopy and, you know, they'd say you've got Crohn's or you've got, you know, ulcerative colitis. I wasn't expecting to wake up and then be like, my what? first of all, my wife, I woke up and my wife was with me she, and because of COVID, she couldn't come in. So I'm sitting there like, I wake up and, cause you're under, you don't know how long you're under for. I was only under for 20 minutes. They woke me up and it was I just kind of weird. For a colonoscopy. Oh yeah, you you get sedated, man. You uh -oh. trust me, you're gonna want to be under, dude. They stick that thing right up your right up your bum, dude. It's I don't want to know what that feels like being awake. But I've had five, almost basically five of those procedures in the last between colonoscopies and stints and everything else that goes into it. We can talk a little bit more about that, but um, but yeah. So I went in and then I woke up and then right when I woke up, my wife was there and I'm like, why is my wife here? Because they weren't letting anybody in because of COVID. And she sat us down. She's like, we found a mass. It's a tumor. And we're 99% sure it's cancer. And it was about the size of a lacrosse ball. Wow. Yeah. So from there, I went and got all my testing done. I got my imaging done. And I was diagnosed with stage 3 colon cancer. Um, it did spread to some of the lymph nodes. Luckily, it didn't spread anywhere else. Um, so from there, immediately, they're like, we need to get this thing out of you. And the game plan was, uh, the first thing they did was they put in a stint. So it's the same way that they do a colonoscopy. They, they go up the backside a little bit and, uh, you know, they sedate you, but they put in a wire mesh and what this wire mesh does is they expand it with a balloon so it can open up your colon so you can go to the bathroom. The only problem is, is you've got, I've got this foreign body inside my body and it's putting a ton of pressure. So I started getting all these abdominal cramps and Ugh. like from, from the initial stint and like, those were bad because like, I hate to say it, but think of the worst cramps you've had when you have to go to the bathroom. That's yeah. kind of what it felt like all the time. Uh, and then one second it would go away and then one second it would come back. So I got the stint and that was for two reasons. One, to give me some relief, but also it would help push the tumor kind of anterior. So when they did the actual colon resection, they could get to it easier because when they do the resection, they go through arthroscopically. So I have four incisions that they made where I have a large incision kind of three or four inches below my belly button. That's about four or five inches long. And then some arthroscopic ones to do the uh, to do the the rest of the resection. So I'm lucky because I didn't have to have like they didn't have to cut me wide open. Yeah, yeah. I didn't yeah. have to have a colostomy bag, which a lot of people when they have colon cancer they have to have a bag, 
and because they essentially don't have enough plumbing to work with. So they need to, they need to find a way to get the waste out because everything else is kind of screwed up. So I was lucky. I didn't know going into my surgery, if I was going to wake up with a colostomy bag or not. Yep. Um, this was a scenario they go in and you actually meet a, what they call a stomy nurse and they actually do a little exam and they, it's the craziest thing. I would have thought they would have had a little bit less barbaric way of doing this, but they go in and they find the spots and they take a needle and they carve X's into your stomach in like four or five places with a needle. And then they, then they put ink in it. So it doesn't disappear too soon. So mm -hmm. it almost acts like a temper. It acts like a temporary tattoo. It, it sticks around for a few weeks. Cause if you were to just do like regular permanent marker, it wouldn't work. So right, right. of course they made, they made all these incisions, like not even incisions. They're just scratches, but it's just annoying. It's like, yeah, yeah. They're, they're scraping X's into your stomach and you're like, man, this sucks. Anyway, you feel it like it didn't numb it or anything. Oh no. They just get in there, dude. Oh like, my it, God. It's on it. Yeah. It's like, imagine taking, have you ever seen a lancet that a diabetic uses? Yeah. 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 It's kind of like that. And they just, they scratch like three or four X's in you and they, they just mark it and then go from there. So, and that was so, if they have the surgery and the surgeon knows where, if they have to put a bag in and they know where to access and create the opening for the bag. Okay. So luckily I didn't have that. Um, but I did have a, a colon resection. I was in the hospital for just about four days. I got to tell you, man, the pain from the actual surgery, like, cause I've never had any major surgery in my life. I've had some back injuries and stuff, but I've never, I've never had a surgery really. And, uh, this was crazy because it took me probably, an hour to walk 200 feet really because because it felt like someone oh was stabbing me in the stomach because they had me on a morphine drip for three days and then when you take off and you go home you're just you know they give you obviously pain medication but here's the scoop a lot of the pain medication they go they give you the opiates make you constipated and when you've just oh. had a colon resection dude the last thing you want to do is be constipated right so i was sitting there like what am i supposed to do like i understand that it helps with the pain but then there's there's always a side effect, and that's one thing I'm learning about my medication and everything they're putting me on, is you, you do one thing and it always causes something else. It's kind of like when you see those commercials for like asthma, and it's like you can either have asthma or like diarrhea or like 97 other symptoms that are just as bad, right? Yeah. So, but anyway, so, you know, I, I, I got through my resection and I was home. I stayed home for about three weeks and then I started chemotherapy and uh, I started chemotherapy in in the middle of March. And the way that my chemotherapy worked is um, it's called Folfox and it's a very standard treatment for colon cancer. It's, it's a, a proven protocol, if you will. Like even my doctor was like, well, you've got run of the mill colon cancer. I was like, I guess that's better than some sort of odd genetic mutation, right? <laughs> yeah. So we ended up, um, you know, the way that my chemotherapy works is I had to get a port. Um, I had a small surgery where they, uh, it's called a porticath. So it goes into your chest um, right below your collarbone. And then they feed the catheter into one of the larger veins into your neck. And that's how they access my port. So every time I go get chemo, they just have this little right angle needle and they just stick it in and access it and kind of go from there. And, uh, and it's there. So yeah, the I, I have, it's just there nonstop. Yeah, it's there nonstop and I'll get it removed. Um, after my scans, once my skins, if my scans are clean, I'll get it removed that way. So I can get back to jujitsu. <laughs> if, if I'm being brutally honest with you, that's exactly why I want it. Because if this gets hit or dislodged, I'm going to have to go to the hospital anyways and get it taken out. Ugh, so, got it. and you know, you know how it is, dude, there's always that one spazzy white belt. That's like 290 <laughs> that's trying to murder you. So, but, um, so yeah, so now, uh, my chemotherapy, that was six months. So I go in on a Wednesday I do my actual chemo where they have uh, two different medicines that they infuse at the same time. It takes about the actual infusions about two hours, but when they do all of my vitals and all my prep, I'm usually there for three to three and a half. So I go to the How hospital on Wednesdays every other week for six months. Wow. Okay. So I basically go in, I get my chemotherapy. I leave there about noon or one. I go home. I meet a visiting nurse. She connects me to a chemo pump for 46 hours. And I, I wear a bag and I have all the wiring and, and the tubing and I work on Thursdays at the gym. I usually do like a 12 or 13 hour shift at the gym with my chemo pump. And then Fridays around 11 or 12, I, I, I take it off and, um, and it was rinse and repeat for six months. And this Wednesday is my last treatment. So, wow. Yeah, it's been, uh, it's been over seven months, pretty much seven months since my diagnosis. And 
this Friday, I'll be disconnected from my 12th round. Um, there's a few things. I don't know if it's going to be the exact same protocol because I'm, some of the side effects that I'm experiencing are pretty crappy. So I'm not sure if they're going to give me the normal kind of dosage. They may cut it down a little bit because I am dealing with some neuropathy that could become permanent. So yeah, man, it's been a, it's been a crazy ride, but it's, uh, you know, I feel like I just, I feel like I've always had it, but I feel like it just, I just got diagnosed yesterday. It's a very weird thing when you're living with cancer because like right now I'm technically, technically considered like cancer free, but that was just from the preliminary scans and the surgery. There was no disease at that point, but that doesn't mean things have, could have changed. So even though I'm going to be done with my chemo, I still have to wait almost five weeks to get my scans. And then my scans will tell me if I'm clean. You so that's like be the five more weeks. Yeah, because you, you have, it's, your body has to clear the chemo because the chemo causes, causes inflammation. Mm. And uh, on the, the cat, you know, on the CT scans and everything, it, it just gets a little bit more blurry when it's still in your system. So you want to give the body time to, to kind of process the chemotherapy. So yeah, man, it's, uh, it's been a crazy ride, but, um, I'm looking forward to, to, to getting done this week. Uh, hopefully that's done forever. Right. God willing. Absolutely. So, so, um, as of right now, based on the scans there, are they positive? I mean, I, I always wonder how doctors act in the situation. They can't give you false hope, but like, how are they acting? What are they saying? So they don't say much, to be honest with you. They, and again, you said it false hope. They don't, they don't want to give you any inkling of hope if they, they're not sure that they can prove it. So, right. um, but the good thing is, is when I, when I had my surgery, my, my surgeon, who is different than my oncologist, he was like, margins were clear. Like we, there was no visible sign of cancer, which is really good because a lot of the times they can't get it all out. Like if it's spread into your liver, into your lungs, man, it can get really, really bad. So for me, I'm just waiting to see technically if the, the chemotherapy did its job. Cause what they call it, they call this a little bit of a cleanup chemo. So my rate of survival in, in cancer research and in, in cancer terminology, five years is like a big, a big number. Like if you get diagnosed and five years later, you're cancer free there's a pretty good chance you're going to remain cancer free. So every year you get out from your diagnosis and your treatment, your chances are that much better. So based off of the math, and this is just math, if I were to just do my surgery alone, my five-year survivor rate would be about 40 to 45%. Okay. But that that's just a five-year number. It could be 10 years. It could be 12 right. years. Just the research is usually five years. Um, but with the chemotherapy, it increases it to 70, 75%. Wow. Okay. So that that's why they're like, this is what we're doing. You're getting the resection and then you're going to do your chemo after because that's going to give you the greatest chance at a cure. Amazing. Amazing. Okay. Yeah. Good. And and I know I know you found out because of the, of the colonoscopy, but did you ever go to like your your uh, primary care physician? Like, did you ever get blood work done? Was there any sign through through blood work, like white blood cell count, anything that pointed to this or, or no? So for some people. There are some some data that you can gather. There is some data that you can gather, and there are metrics you can get from the blood. But I took blood tests. I had uh, ACE pylori bacteria test that came back negative. I had a blood test in my stool that came back negative. Um, everything came back negative. So I was like, "This can't be cancer." Like, you know what I'm saying? That's so crazy. And then, and the the only thing that that's the they they call it like the silent killer because some people will be stage four and never know it. Like they'll just get like a belly ache and like fart a lot or something. I don't know. But like literally it's like I know a lot of people that like went from like did not even knowing to stage four. Really? And that's yeah, that's that's the crazy thing, man. That is the crazy thing. It just it, it can sneak up on you so quickly and you don't even know it. It's just it's absolutely insane. But it just is what it is because there are some people like I'll be honest with you. I knew something was up. But like, no one's like, I'm going to go to the doctors to get a colonoscopy because I think I might have colon cancer. Like no one thinks that way. Right. I was just thinking it's got to be Crohn's because like one of my closest friend had Crohn's and he had a lot of the similar stuff. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, like some sort of IBS or IBD. Right. Like that's what I was thinking. I wasn't thinking cancer. And uh, sure enough, man, it was cancer. So, you know, if I could give any advice to anybody, if you're seeing like changes when you go to the bathroom and, and, and don't be ashamed to talk about it because yes, no one like, no one wants to talk about pooping and peeing. I mean, if you have like little kids, like we talk about that literally every single day, but <laughs> you don't usually see like two grown adults being like, Hey, uh, how's your pooping going these days? Like <laughs> any, any blood that I should know, like those, you know, it's, 
people don't talk about it because it's private, you know? I, it's just not, and to be honest, men, men are worse. Men don't talk about anything. Men are just like, you know, I want to be rough and tough and blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, you can be as tough as you want, but if you have cancer, you get a freaking fight on your hands, man. And, and like, it's just crazy. And, and the, the incidence of this happening is, is growing at an alarming rate. And my oncologist and my oncologist nurse and my dietitians are like, we still don't know why the incidence, is, uh, the rate of incidence is happening at such a fast rate. They really don't know. They have some inklings and some ideas, but this used to be considered an old person's disease. Right, right. I'm 41 years old. I got diagnosed when I was, you know, right before my birthday. So like, this is not a 70 year old person's disease. This is, it's happening to people in their twenties and their thirties and their forties. The recommended age for colonoscopies used to be 50. They just moved it to 45. And my oncologist thinks that within five years, it'll be moved to 40. That's crazy. And, and, and the, the only real way to definitively know is through a colonoscopy. Yeah. Usually that's the first, the first way that they look at it and you should have, you know, routine colonoscopies. And I, I, I encourage everybody to look at your medical history too, and look at your family's medical history. I grew up in a blue collar family. Um, parents both worked two jobs. I didn't even know that I had colon cancer in my family until after my diagnosis. Come to find out, both of my grandparents on one side had it, and one of my grandparents on the other side had it. I never knew this. No at all way. My, my dad was a machinist. He was a tradesman. My mom was the secretary. We didn't talk about things. Just sweep it under the rug. Like, why would yeah. you talk about stuff like this? <laughs> But I wish I would have known because I would have started getting screened at 35 and I probably maybe had a polyp and yeah. this would have been taken care of. But it's just scary because you really don't know. And no one wants to admit that they're you know getting older and things are changing a little bit. But I got to tell you, man, if you and, and I'll say it again and again, if I can help as many people possible, if you're if you're having stomach issues or you're you're dealing with stuff and you're seeing changes when you go to the bathroom, don't think it's just a food allergy or mm. you don't like dairy, like, cause I eliminated every single food you could freaking think of, man. I was, I was at the point where I was doing a low residue diet, which was basically like white processed foods because it's easier to digest and that didn't help. So, and I was taking everything. I took probiotics. I took, they gave me antibiotics at one point. I was taking, I mean, you name it. I was on Amazon buying every stomach <laughs> IBS thing you can buy under the sun and it just wasn't helping nothing was doing it. And I was like, this is, this is not good. And that's, that's when I decided to finally, you know, go get my colonoscopy. And that's, that's when, you know, obviously the, the shit hit the fan. And you've posted on your social media fair amount, Hey, go get checked, go get your colonoscopy. And you've had people find stuff because they went and got checked after you said it. Yeah. So I've probably, I mean, I, I haven't written it down, but I've probably had about 30 people tell me that they've got colonoscopies just because of me or, or, Maybe it was a female getting a mammogram or someone just yep. doing their checkups. Yep, yep. Probably, probably close to 15 found polyps and a few okay. of them were precancerous. My brother, my brother had precancerous polyps. No way. That's a crazy but, percentage of the people yeah. who told you they got it to have actually to have a polyp or something. That's crazy. Yeah. And if it's just a, if it's a non-cancerous polyp, they go in, they snip it and usually you're good. Right. Um, but yeah, I would say probably close to 15 people are like, Hey, I went and got a colonoscopy and they did find something. And sometimes it could have been nothing. It could have been a, you know, a non-cancerous type of polyp, but still they got to get it out of there. Yeah. So I, I guess if there is any silver lining to this whole entire scenario, it's that people are starting to take care of themselves. And, and, you know, maybe me being so vocal about my diagnosis and my story has helped someone. And that's, that's the reason why I chose to be very vocal and open because I'm a pretty, you know, I, I do my social media stuff, but I'm not a super personal guy. Like I don't yeah. talk about myself much, but I finally decided I was like, this is important because if I can save someone else's life or prolong their life just by educating them to me, that's the best thing you can do to help someone out. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I, I've loved watching you talk about it. Um, you know, I've seen you on social media for years and, and you are, you're, you are very straightforward, straight to the point about, about training, conditioning, uh, mixed martial arts, all that stuff, but you don't talk about yourself very much. So it's actually been in a unique way, uh, great to watch you post about yourself and something you're so passionate about outside of, of fitness, which has been wonderful. Um, I know you've spoken about it to me, but w what are some of the things that 
that your doctors have told you might be contributing to the rise in colon cancer? So there are a few things. And again, this isn't like 100% solid research. It's more, mostly trends at this point. Um, alcohol Which are use, important. Trends are important. Yeah, to- 100% because trends usually leads to data, right? Yeah, exactly. So um, they told me to, to limit my alcohol intake. And to be honest, I was never like a big drinker. I'd have a few beers on the weekend. And I like my, my uh, Northeast IPAs because we're spoiled up here. <laughs> um, but it was definitely, you know, limit alcohol intake, which again, that's not an issue for me. Smoking, I don't smoke. So I'm not really concerned about that. Um, they did say they wanted me to reduce my uh, consumption of red meat. Okay. Um, because there is some correlation between red meat and cancer, specifically um, the way that the, the meat is cooked. So anytime you char foods and there's a bunch of charring on the meats that can potentially um cause carcinogens to i don't know if the word is create or happen or that can be a byproduct of the way that you prepare the meat but there is a correlation between the way that you cook your your meat and the to colon cancer mm-hmm. um and then obviously genetics play a huge role in it in family history um and um the big thing is just obviously normal like healthy stuff like keeping you know, a, a healthy body weight and just hydrating and just eating healthy. I mean, that's sort of the big thing, right? I living the healthiest lifestyle that you can. And, and that, that's really what they told me. But the two things were alcohol and red meat. And that was coming right from my doctors. That was coming right from all of my nurses, all the dietitians that specialize in cancer nutrition. That's what they were telling me, which is interesting because, you, you know, you've done the carnivore diet, you've done everything. And it's very interesting to see this. And and again, I'm not going to tell people to not go and have a steak because listen, man, as soon as I can, you better believe I'm going to have a big juicy <laughs> burger. And a steak. But I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to probably have once, once a month. Right. 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 Because, yep. you know, that's just something that I, even my doctors are like, you can still have it. Just, you're going to have to just, we recommend that you cut it down. But I mean, I love red meat, man. I was eating burgers twice a week and steak twice a week. So it's like, I probably could have used to to probably cut down on my red meat intake. And again, if people choose to eat red meat, cool. But I'm just sharing my story. Yeah, no, that that's what this is all about, man. It's like, and I know some people are going to be like, well, actually, the data shows this. Da, da, da. It's, listen, it's, uh, I think it's it's a really great opportunity for us to hear your story from you and for you to share this, uh, all the information that your doctors have told you about it. And I think it's it's important. And forever it's worth, like, there's a fair amount of data showing that uh, higher amounts of red meat, especially processed red meat, can lead to negative health outcomes like different types of cancer. Like, it's you can't deny that. That's very obvious in the research. So um, if if nothing else, I, I hope people listening will will go get checked, whether it's a mammogram or a colonoscopy or whatever it is. Uh, or encourage physical. Them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people skip physicals all the time. And, or the dentist, man. I can't tell you how many people, like, I've been to the dentist in five years. I'm like, you should go to the dentist. Like, yeah. that's not good because now you're playing catch up, right? That's and now awesome. you're probably going to need, like, you're going to need to go to get cleanings, like, every three months. You're probably going to, you could, you probably need more dental work. Like, just stay ahead of it, man. So you're not playing catch up down the road. That's one thing people don't understand. It's like, it's easier. I mean, obviously, you're a fat loss guy and you know way more about fat loss than I do, but it's easier to lose 10 pounds than it is 50. Yeah. Yes. In most case, in most cases, I'm no. not saying in literally every but, case, I, I couldn't possibly, <laughs> I, I couldn't think of a scenario in which it's easier to lose 50 than 10. Yeah. Of course. Yeah, it's way you you got to lose, gotta lose, you got to lose 10 before you can lose 20 and vice versa and, and so on and so forth. Right. So, yeah. um, but it is, it's, it's just easier to take care of yourself and be, be proactive and, and practice preventative, you know, preventative maintenance than anything else. It's like, same thing with like, obviously I don't want to compare the, you know, the body to a, a car, but there's a reason why you have to do certain things to your car to keep it running. And it's yes. the same thing as your body. It's just preventative maintenance, just doing the things there's wear and tear. That's just, it is what it is. Yeah. Have, have they, did they talk about, uh, about trends they see with body weight or body fat and, and cancer as well? Was that something they spoke about or no? So, um, they didn't specifically speak about it with me, but I, I will say this, and this is just an observation. It's not judging, but when I'm in the cancer center with a lot of other people, the majority of them are heavy. Interesting. That's and again, I'm not, uh, but, but even, I mean, even Listen, my doctors, you're, you're are not, like, you're not overweight and I, I you don't have to be overweight in order to get cancer, but if it's a trend, that's important to be aware of, exactly. especially lately with a lot of the people saying like your body weight literally doesn't matter. It's like, well, no, let's, it does it and it can impact your health. Even if it's not cancer, like the impact it has on your joints, your tendons, your ligaments, mentally, emotionally. But if we see trends towards that uh, leading to higher rates of cancer, that it's important to be aware of. 
Absolutely. And, and again, it's just, this is a simple observation. I don't have the data, but I know this, if you aren't taking care of yourself in general and you have excessive body weight, um, we're not going to go into the BMI talk because I think a lot of that is crap, but, um, <laughs> but if, if you're not healthy, your chances of getting a significant disease increases. And that's just really what it boils. It could be, it could be high blood pressure. It could be heart disease. It could be diabetes. It could be cancer. Um, you know, I'm not trying to, to scare people, but this is a real thing, man. I was 41 years old. I didn't think I was going to get diagnosed with cancer with a family, with a business, with two young boys. I didn't think that I was going to get diagnosed with cancer. I thought I was invincible, man. Like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, you get a little bit old and you slow down, but I never, I never would have expected in a million years that that would have been what happened. How, how have your boys been doing with it? I, I, how, how old are they again? Six and 10. Six and 10. So how are they? How are they yeah. Doing? So my youngest, um, he's, you know, he's a six-year-old. He's a maniac. He's like Buddy the Elf, dude. He just wants to like eat candy and play. Like he's the happiest kid in the world, man. And and honestly, like he he gets when dad's not feeling well and he'll come and snuggle with me. And, you know, I was like, Drew, you want to rub my feet? And he's like, yeah, dad, I'll rub your feet. So like, <laughs> he's good. My oldest son, who's 10, um, he had a tougher time because he's never seen me incapacitated like that. He's mm. never, I've always been, the guy working out, going to jujitsu, grappling, running sprints in the backyard, just being super active. And we didn't, he, I mean, it would take me like, I would need help getting out of a chair after my surgery. So after yeah. my surgery, he was really concerned about me because he, he looks up to his dad and, you know, dad's the strong guy that can do this and he can lift stuff. He can, you know, he can do his thing. He's a superhero. Now, now dad can't walk. Now, yeah. now dad has to, you know what I'm saying? So we didn't, I didn't know how to prepare him for that because I didn't know what to expect myself. I was like, okay, like I've had some nasty back stuff. I've had to have cortisone shots. I'm thinking I'll get through this. Like I'll tough it out. But this was just, you know, that type of invasive abdominal surgery was tough. And he, he, my oldest son took it a little bit harder because, you know, if I could have gone back, I would have prepared him and been like, listen, bud, dad's going to be real sick. He's going to be coming out of the hospital and he's not going to be able to move and he's going to be in a lot of pain. And you just guys need to understand that. But we didn't, I didn't know. I've never had a colon, a colon resection rather. So he took it a little bit harder, but as he started to get acclimated to where I was at and as I started to heal up, um, you know, he saw me post surgery, which was, I was in bad shape. I mean, I was, I was hurting. I didn't know how bad I was hurting until he took me off the morphine. And then I realized, wow, like I'm really in a lot of pain. And then on my chemo weeks, I feel like crap. So he knows that from Wednesday to usually Saturday to Sunday, I just simply don't feel well. And I, it feels like a, I always tell people, it feels like a four day hangover that you can't cure with some French fries. Like <laughs> that, that's, you know, that's what it feels like. It's just, it, you're constantly feeling nauseous. You're constantly feeling like crap. And there's all a bunch of random side effects that are part of treatment, which I would have never even thought of. Cause you know, you go to treatment, they give you a list of you know, 900 things yeah. that could be potential side effects. And obviously they, they break it down to ones that are more common than not. But, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's been a crazy ride just with my whole entire family with the kids. And then my wife has just been a freaking rock star, just taking care of everything. Like her biggest concern that I was, I, I was going to lose a ton of weight because it happens to a lot of people because you don't, you just don't have an appetite. I mean, on my can't, on my treatment weeks, dude, I'm eating, like everyone's like, you should eat like this when you're on chemo. And it's like, dude, I will eat a frozen pizza every freaking night if that's what I need to get my calories in right now, because I, I needed to eat something that I could eat that like could actually taste good. Cause one second it would taste good. The next second I would, the smell of it would make me sick. Really interesting. Really interesting. Yeah. My wife, my wife said it was very similar to first trimester pregnancy. Okay. Random, random smells will make me sick and certain foods will make me sick. So it's just interesting to see you know, how many of the sort of chemotherapy symptoms and, and the way that you taste and smell very, very similar to what my wife said she went through when she was in her first trimester with her kids. That's so interesting. Wow. Okay. So what, what was your training like? Were you still, have you been able to exercise? Like how, how has that been? Yeah. So my training has on uh, my chemo weeks because I go in on a Wednesday and I'm usually not feeling very well until about Sunday or Sunday night. Usually on my chemo weeks, I try to exercise Monday and Tuesday, and then I won't exercise till the following Monday. And then on my treatment weeks, I mean, my non-treatment weeks, I'll probably try to get in like three to four days. And my main focus has been just some aerobic work and doing a little bit of hypertrophy work because I've definitely lost 
some muscle from yeah. um from everything and and that's been a weird thing too because i've never been a big guy uh i've always been a decently strong but i've never been a big guy but you know losing a decent amount of muscle mass and losing some body weight as someone who's always looked at themselves as a little bit of a stronger guy like just feeling like man i can't do this and i can't do this and i get so tired just doing random stuff now because um, you know, exhaustion from the chemotherapy. So I'm looking forward to, to building myself back up a little bit and just getting a little bit stronger and, and getting myself ready to get back on the mats and train. You know, I want to dig in a little bit more, uh, to the training you've been doing now, just in case maybe someone's going through it. Right. I, I know I have, uh, several inner circle members who are currently going through chemo and, uh, could you just like, you said aerobic work and I know, I know what that means, but talk, what, what is aerobic work? Like how, how do you structure that right now? So for me, um, originally it started with just going out and, uh, going out for like some walks and jogs on some trails in the woods. Um, I didn't want to drive my, my heart rate too, too high because I would just get exhausted. So I'd, you know, go out there and I'd run, I'd run for a minute and then I'd walk for a minute and I'd run for a minute and I'd walk for a minute and I'd do that on trails for about 30 minutes. And I'd try to get out there a couple times a week. Um, so as far as sort of traditional aerobic work, I guess that would be a little bit more biased towards the traditional, what people think of as like the, you know, slow, steady state cardio aerobic stuff. Um, in addition to that, I'm also doing some interval based kettlebell work when I can just using some light bells. I'll do some on the minute work or I'll do some, some strength aerobics, which is like complexes for time, but I'm not going crazy heavy, but it's, uh, any ways that I can continue to develop my work capacity through whether it's walking, running or jogging, or I'm a big fan of kettlebells. And then from a lifting standpoint, Honestly, uh, I, I tend to bias myself towards some just a little bit of upper like back and buys and chest and tries and legs right now because I had to do everything I could to try to keep as much muscle on. And that was the most logistical way for me because I, I you know, I, for the longest time, I couldn't zip up real tight to back squat heavy or deadlift heavy because I was still healing up from the incision. So um, I did a lot of um, not a lot of true strength, like sub like five RM work. Right. I, I definitely increased my volume. Sometimes I do some like escalated density training where I'm just bouncing back and forth between a couple exercises or I do some, uh, some complexes with kettlebells, but I'm pretty good at self-managing it. So for me, it was just to make sure that I, I knew I was going to lose a lot of my work capacity and my strength, but my goal was to just minimize that and, and train when I felt like it. I didn't have a set schedule. I'm like, this is what I'm doing. I'd kind of have templates and some days I do a little bit more lifting and I'm like, other days I'm like, you know, I don't want to lift. I'm just going to go out in the woods and get a little bit of work. So that was the primarily kind of how my workouts looked during treatment. I, I like talking about this because whether it's cancer, whether with cancer yourself or someone maybe in your family has cancer or, or something in life happens, so many people get really distraught at the idea of quote unquote, losing progress, losing muscle mass, getting weaker. But the way you approach it is just so matter of fact. Like, yeah, I know I'm gonna I'm gonna lose strength. I'm not gonna be able to work out as much as I want. How quickly do you think you're gonna be able to get it all back? Like, what do you think that's gonna look like? I think if I if once I'm really what my goal is gonna be is I'm gonna I'll probably ramp up my training after my my last treatment, and I'll probably start being a little bit more consistent. I will probably go template based for about a month until I can get my scans, and then then I'll get my surgery to get my cat my portacath out. And then once that heals up, I'll start trying to hit the ground, uh, boosting up my work capacity and, and doing a lot more bell work and a lot more sprint repeats and stuff like that to get me ready to get back on the mats for grappling. How long until you think you get back on the mats? Have you been doing any jujitsu at all? Early, I was doing private. So um, I would have uh, one of my close friends is uh, my buddy, Mike. He lives, uh, he's a black belt. He lives two miles from me. So he would come over to the house. We'd set up mats in the basement. We'd drill, and of course, it, <laughs> then we'd just start trying to murder each other. But it was great because he's a black belt, and he's a little bit heavier than me. But we got working. But he was really good because he knew to stay away from the side where my port was. So we were still able to work hard, yeah, yeah. And like get some work in without. I'm not concerned about him hurting me. And then one of my main coaches, Rafael Cardero, who is uh, one of my favorite people in the the whole world, he would even come to the gym and be like, "We're, we're training." He That's goes, awesome. I brought my geek, put your gi on. He'd be like, you're training. And, <laughs> and, 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 and I loved it because, you know, he's, a, he's a, he's a very old school jujitsu guy. I mean, he's top, top 50 in the world for black belts, but he didn't take He didn't, he didn't care if I had cancer, man. He whooped my ass. <laughs> and honestly, I loved it. I was smiling ear to ear. I mean, 
I'd be going up, he'd be pushing me down and he'd be ragdolling. I'm like, I don't care, man. I'm just having, I'm having so much fun because I'm back on the freaking mats. Yeah. And for me, so I did that about maybe six to 10 times, but then schedules just got crazy. And then I started working a little bit more. So, but, uh, I'm looking forward to, I'm thinking I should be able to mid November start, start, uh, going, you know, going a little bit harder. It should probably take about seven to 10 days for my, for my scar to heal up from my, my surgery to remove the, uh, the porticath. And then, uh, from there, I'm just gonna, I've already got my jujitsu schedule mapped out. I'm already like, I've got my classes and my private sessions I'm going to do with another coach. So I'm excited to, to get back to that. How did you get into jujitsu? Uh, how did, how did this happen? So growing up, I was always a fan of martial arts. Um, I actually took Shotokan karate when I was in my early years, probably around, I would say, eight to 10 years old. But I was a freaking maniac, hyperactive kid with, you know, a bunch of boys in the neighborhood. And we'd just end up beating the hell out of each other. So my parents are like, well, maybe we shouldn't teach our crazy kid, like, how to <laughs> harm others. I did actually beat up a kid in the neighborhood and I got in trouble. So, like, that was like... <laughs> <laughs> my parents are like, maybe we should just like put you on a soccer field where you could just run all day. Yeah. Um, so I was always, I was always interested in combat sports from a young age. And, and I was always interested in karate. Like I grew up watching karate movies, like all the old school, like eighties karate movies. I'm talking like, you know, blood sport, kickboxer, like no retreat, no surrender, which is one of like Van Damme's earlier ones. Like, I mean, looking back, they weren't the greatest movies, but I just loved them. And then I, uh, as I, as I got more into kettlebell training, there was a lot of people that are doing kettlebell training and a lot of people that are doing kettlebell training were military guys or fighters or mixed martial artists. So, um, I was teaching a kettlebell certification at, um, at my gym here. And I ran into a Muay Thai instructor out of city Tong, Boston, which is one of the most prestigious Muay Thai schools, um, definitely in the East coast, but in the world, city Tong is a very, very recognized name. And, uh, his name, uh, my buddy Jake. And, and I told him, I said, Hey, um, I said, you know, I'm a, I'm a strength coach getting into kettlebells. I would love to work with a full-time fighter. Do you have anybody that you would recommend? And they sent one guy over and I trained him like twice, but it just, it wasn't meshing. So he's like, I got another guy for you. He said, he's a four and one pro, but he's very, very promising. I said, okay, what's his name? He goes, his name's Rob Font. And this was nine years ago. Wow. I said, okay, bring him in. And so Rob was not the Rob Fonny was now Rob was a four and one pro. He was pudgy, never seen an ab in his life. <laughs> um, like, and I just, I told him, I said, man, listen, we're going to start working together. And, uh, it's pretty cool to see how it's, how it's gone because Rob right now is the number three ranked bantamweight in the UFC. Yeah. Uh, and because of, uh, the success we've had working together, I've been able to work with probably another 20 to 25 UFC fighters over the last, you know, almost decade and a lot of up and coming, um, amateur fighters that were in Bellator or CES MMA, and then just a lot of grapplers too. So it, it kind of snowballed into that. And once Rob started having a bunch of success, we just, I started getting all these fighters and it just kept on snowballing. So now I'm kind of a little bit more known for working with fighters. And that's one of my passions. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun because it, it keeps you on your toes and there's so many things you have to think about. It's not like, I just want to lose weight or I just want to gain weight. It's like, I need to remain as powerful as possible. I need to remain injury free when, when possible. I need to get as the best shape possible while losing weight. Like there's all of these things that um, seem very, very counterproductive, but there's so many parts of the puzzle that I enjoy figuring that puzzle out. Mm -hmm. It's like when someone comes in and they have like a random thing that maybe like a, a local PT hasn't helped with. I love that's That's what gets me going is saying, what can I do to try to help this guy fix it? Because I may be one of the last lines of, you know, uh, last one, one of the last few people that can potentially help, um, you know, these people get through these, these musculoskeletal things. And I just lucked out because I had a lot of really good, I had a lot of really good coaches, um, and mentors that allowed me to, to learn from them. So that's really how I got into training fighters and going from there. You know, mixed martial arts is interesting because you're saying there's so many moving parts. It's not just like a weight loss goal or muscle gain goal. It's also the, you have to manage so many different components. Like, so they're not just lifting weights, right? They're lifting weights. They're doing jujitsu. 
they're doing Muay Thai, they're also doing their conditioning, they're also whatever else. And a lot of them also work full time jobs because, you know, you're not making oh, much yeah. money unless you're one of the best of the best of the best. Uh, they're not making much money at all. So they have full time jobs on top all of, of all of this and they're probably not getting much sleep. So there's so many different components that you have to manage when you're managing a, a mixed martial arts fighter. It's one of the, the most unique parts about it. Um, and I've always really enjoyed your approach to it in a, a very, I think you have, I think the reason I like it is because you have a very realistic approach to it, right? Like it's not an idealistic. I, I know there are many people out there have an idealistic approach to training fighters in regard to building their aerobic base and just like, well, this is actually what the science says. It's like, yeah, but what are you going to do? Are you going to be like running steady state for two hours straight or like you're going to do what's most efficient to get them in and out. It's going to help them most with their jujitsu training and their Muay Thai and their strength and conditioning is you have a very realistic, effective approach that I've always enjoyed. Well, the whole block periodization or true periodization model does not work. I mean, we're not dealing with Soviet athletes that are on a bunch of junk and that are competing every four years. Then, yes, you can actually have a true periodization model. But, you know, I, I like the idea of what we call concurrent periodization, where you're bringing up multiple qualities at once. Because, you know, if, if you're like a five or six and oh pro fighter, you're on the cusp of probably if you've if you've got a good personality and they like you, you've got to probably if you're five and oh, six and oh, seven and oh, your chances of getting to the USC are pretty good. Like as long as you have a good manager and, and, and someone that's going to help you with that. Right. So that's that's the, the beauty of it. But at the same time, like Rob Font, when he got the call up to the UFC, they wanted him to jump down a weight class and he had four weeks to get ready. Jeez. So he went from 45 to 35, and luckily oh, he made yeah. weight. He went out. He fought George Roop out in Vegas. I was out for that. He knocked him out and won fight of the night. He bonused on his first night, and that the rest is history, right? But again, we only had three. We had four weeks. Well, technically three weeks because three weeks, the way that yeah. the UFC works, they're out the week prior. So it's it's a lot. There's a lot to manage. There's really a lot to manage when it comes to that, and you'll never know, like. Obviously, like with a guy like Rob, who's number three in the world, we know we're always going to have a full fight camp or they're going to say, hey, these two are fighting for a title. If one guy gets hurt, you're our backup. So you need to yeah. be ready just in case. So that that's what happens a lot of times. But a lot of these up and coming guys, they're taking short notice fights three, four weeks at a time. Yeah. And if they get too heavy, now you're spending the last four weeks of camp or three weeks of camp just losing as much weight as possible rather than improving performance. And that's a whole other conversation we can have about weight management. I always say it's, it's fight camp, not fat camp. Like, <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? Like, we need to, we're in a fight camp. Like, if you're spending the last four weeks of your camp just focusing on dieting and weight loss, you're not improving your performance. You just can't. Yeah, you can't. You can't. Has doing jujitsu, like, personally made you a better coach that's exactly why i started jujitsu because here i was in a position where people were starting to recognize what we were doing at the gym and and people were liking it we were getting great feedback and we were getting great results but i kind of felt like an imposter a little bit i was like i'm working with all these fighters and i don't even know what freaking half guard is like <laughs> you know what i'm saying so i was like i'm just gonna i'm i made some time in my schedule and and in my school uh which was originally um, Phoenix BJJ, which is now Gentle Art. It's five minutes from my gym. So I just, I was like, I'm just going to dive in. And, and I started training jujitsu and uh, I went right to, because of my schedule, I had to go right to competition class, which is a stupid idea because all I did was like <laughs> get the crap kicked out of me because, but here's the scoop. No, actually I take that back. One, the first four weeks I was going at seven o'clock or seven 30 at night. The only problem is I get home at nine or nine 30 and I'd be wound up yeah. because you get the adrenaline going, you're all fired up. And I was staying up till like one in the morning, like wired. <laughs> and I'm like, this can't happen. So just then I had to all your roles <laughs> just thinking about and like crying and shaking and being like, why me? Um, no, but, but what ended up happening is I was like, I, I can't train at night because I'm not sleeping. And then I have to be at the gym at five 30 in the morning. It, it's just, it doesn't work out. So I ended up, taking competition classes and like probably like set six to eight weeks in, man. And I was just getting murdered. Wow. But the, my only saving grace was I was strong and athletic. And to be honest, if you can, if you can go into jitsu having a decent strength base and being decently athletic, you are going to be leaps and bounds about every, uh, above everyone else. Mm -hmm. um, but it was uh, dude, it was lots of, lots of Advil, 
you know, I'd have to go home and I have like an Advil. I'd have like a frozen pizza and beer and I'd still lose weight because I mean, you know, those sessions, dude, it's like insane. when, when, when you're there for two hours and you get done and you're like, I probably just burned 1500 calories. Yeah. yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, a st- like I lost, I lost, I was, when I started jujitsu, I was 186. And then when I finally stabilized my weight, I was 170, 170-ish. So I lost almost 15 pounds of doing, and this wasn't on purpose. This was just, I was so inefficient at jujitsu that yeah. from a metabolic standpoint, I had to, I had to wait. I wasted so much energy just trying to stay alive. And that's great for, for fat loss, right? I mean, being inefficient and burning a ton of calories is great. But when you're trying to get better at jujitsu and you're just constantly throwing punches underwater, it's just brutal. Yeah. And it's, it's one of the, it's the most tiring thing I've ever done. Oh, without question. People understand like, like I didn't wrestle. I know you wrestled growing up, but like people don't understand like how exhausting, like a 20 second scramble is like a legit 20 second scramble where you're fighting for a better position. You're in the dog fight. It sucks. And I don't care. I mean, I've done some, some cool like conditioning stuff where I've pushed myself, but dude, here's the thing. The kettlebell doesn't fight back. The treadmill doesn't fight back. Correct. Barbell, like it's, it's, it's like, um, you know, it's almost like in a way it's like you're, you're fighting, you're fighting against someone that's fighting back, but there are just so many factors and it is a physical chess game and it's a mental chess game too, but it's also a physical chess game. And, um, and I think that's the other reason why I really enjoy it because it's not just like the, like you have to think if you don't think you're not going to be good at jujitsu. And at first you think, and then it becomes hardwired into your nervous system and then you just react and i think i'm now i'm at the pool well, not now currently because i've had to take so much time off from grappling but you know now that i'm at my purple belt stage and i've been a purple belt for a couple of years it's starting to become a little bit more automatic now i'm not like what do i do i just i just go and my body kind of just does what it's supposed to do so it was um yeah man it's it's the most tiring frustrating exhilarating sport that i've ever done and and I wouldn't trade it for anything else. I can't, honestly, that's what I missed the most. It's going to sound silly, but I missed the most out of this whole entire cancer thing. And with COVID was not being on the maps because I love it so much. Dude, I believe it. Man. I, when I first started jujitsu, I started, I was like, I'm going to go two times a week that quickly turned into three times a week, quickly turned into four times a week. Now I train six times a week. And on the one day off, I miss it. Like I, yeah. <laughs> I very much believe that that's the, the thing you miss the most. It, it, you're, it's funny, you were talking about it being the most tiring and like people don't understand how tiring a 20 second scramble is. That's why I always laugh when someone is like, they're like, no, I don't need to train combat. Like if I get in a fight, like I, like I'll just punch them. I'm like, you have no, number one, punching someone accurately is actually a difficult skill to develop. Number two, most people in a scramble within 20 seconds will be gassed. Never mind the adrenaline dump. Never mind all the things going on. Within 20 seconds of actual scrambling with someone, fighting with someone, most people will be completely and utterly destroyed. And people think, oh, you know, the assault bike is difficult. It's like, yeah, it is difficult. It's completely different than when you're going against another human giving everything they have. It's it's without question the most tiring thing. Yeah, and, and the one thing that I always – uh, say to grapplers, especially because a lot of times I'll have experienced grapplers, black belts and brown belts asking me questions. And, and I explained to them, I have to break it down. I said, there are pros and cons to grappling all the time. Because if you're grappling six days a week, someone's going to fall on that ankle a certain way. Someone's going to fall on that knee a certain way. Someone's going to hold on too long. Someone's going to catch you in a quick, a quick submission. You're going to have tweaks and twinges. Your progress in jujitsu is definitely limited by who you're training with. Yes, absolutely. Because if you're, you know, it's, it's one of those things where if you're if you're constantly going with people that are always better than you, you're going to learn to defend really quickly. But at the same time, you're not going to sub too many brown belts and black belts when you're a, a, a white belt or a blue belt. You may be able to here and there catch someone or get a better position. But shit, if you can pass their guard, dude, you're yeah. you're having a day. Good luck. Right. <laughs> but, but the one thing that I because a lot of people uh, have old school jujitsu guys just stay on the mats. All you need to do is go on the mats. And I'm like, I understand where you're coming from because it worked for you, but the injury rate in jujitsu is very, very high. So that's why I do feel like there is a need for a smart strength and conditioning program to keep you on the mats at first, to keep you on the mats. And then your strength and conditioning can become more performance oriented. So you can actually perform at a higher rate on the mats because 
let's be honest, you're not going to go max effort on your client, on your training partner. Like my good friend, who's a, he's a, he's going to get his black belt soon. He's a, you know, six time military veteran. He goes, don't break your toys. And he's like, don't hurt your training partners. Yeah. I love that. Because if you hurt your training partners, you, you, you just can't do it. Right. So, but it, it's one of those things. Strength and conditioning is a vital part of jujitsu from keeping you healthy. And the fact that if you do want to go max effort, you can go max effort on an assault bike and you will get something out of it. Don't get me wrong, but it's not going to replace your ability to defend a Kimura or an arm bar or someone take your back. Like you can't bike sprint your way out of that situation. Yes, you can probably fight a little bit longer because you have that overall work capacity, but you need to know the technical component, but you still need to be strong and you still need to be conditioned because, you know, I know the old saying, well, jujitsu is in invented because it's a little guy could take on a big guy. Yeah, I get it. That's if you get like a black belt, that's one, you know, 150 and a, you know, a, an out of shape dude that thinks he's tough because he get a couple bar fights. Like I understand it, but. Being strong and, and being conditioned and being and moving really, really well is, is going to help you that much more on the mats and off the mats. I agree completely. Now, let me ask you this, because I get this question a lot ever since I've spoken more about jujitsu and, and, and put it on in my stories and, and spoken about it. I, I, people ask me, they say, do I need to be a certain level of fit before I start jujitsu? And my answer is always like, no, just if you're thinking about it, get in there. What do you think? Do you think that someone should get to a certain level of fitness before they start? Or do you think if they're thinking about it, just get in there and, and you'll get better as you go? I think so. Jiu-jitsu is definitely a sport that is it's hard on the body. It's hard physically and it's hard on the ego. Um, I think some people will want to do a little bit more strength training, get themselves in shape so they can feel a little bit better about they're still going to get their asses kicked, by the way. Nice. Correct. But I, I, my big thing is I think if you want to do jujitsu, you should just dive in and you should just be smart and you should communicate with your coaches and, and know kind of who to roll with and who to avoid, because there's always going to be people, right? There's always going to be people that are going to, that are just going to be too aggressive. But the big thing that I will say is I just, the, I've heard people say jujitsu is great for fat loss and weight loss. And I agree to a certain extent, but I feel like there's better ways. Like, eating in a calorie deficit. Nutrition. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. like you're, you're not going to like be in a calorie deficit and blow your ACL. Like, you know what I'm saying? Yes. If that's all you're doing. Correct. But yeah, jujitsu, if you can survive it for six months to a year, you lose a ton of weight. And there's some people that have made some amazing transformation, but there's always collateral damage. There's always an ankle, a knee, a back, a neck, a shoulder, a hip. So yes, I do recommend people to, 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 to start off and just do it, but just, Go a couple times a week, get your body acclimated, build up your body armor. Cause you know, man, you get sore and you get tweaks and twinges in the weirdest spots from doing jujitsu. Like there's nothing pleasant about it. It was so interesting when I first started, I, I went in, you know, I, I, I went in and started at what, 20, 28 or 29. And I had wrestled all through high school. So I was thinking I was just going to be awesome that it was going to be easy. And Dude, for the first several months after every session, I would come back to my apartment and I'd need to take a two-hour nap. I was exhausted. And I had to stop strength training completely because I like I my body couldn't recover enough. And then it, only after the first couple months could I start to add strength training back. And now I'm at a point where I can train jujitsu six times a week and I can strength train three to four times a week on top of it. But it's taken me two years plus to, to build up to this level of, of uh, resilience with my body. Um, Going back to what you're saying about weight loss, this is really interesting. I've known, found a lot of people who once they start jujitsu, they start losing weight. And the interesting part about it is I've found that a lot of the people who, who chronically say, I, I'm just not motivated, I'm just not motivated, when they start something like jujitsu and they fall, they fall in love with it, like so many people do, they now have a reason to lose weight that is outside of simply physique. They now have a reason to lose weight that has to do with their performance, with them getting better at something that they have so much passion about. It's an external source of motivation as opposed to an internal source of motivation. It's like, I want to get better because I can perform better because this is my performance will improve and I will get better at this activity rather than I just want to have a six pack. And I've found that consistently has better results for people's health and fat loss than anything else. Absolutely. It's a, uh... It's interesting you say that because I, I forget who said this first, but um, 
I really like the idea of it. I'd love to hear your input on this too. Um, oftentimes when you chase performance-based goals, you get the aesthetics that you're looking for. Yes, yes. But if you're chasing just aesthetics, you're probably not going to get the performance-based goals. That's exactly right. Right? And, and I've looked at all the times in my life where I felt like I felt and looked the best. I was training for performance. I wasn't training to look good. I was like, I remember like a long time ago when I was going to do a powerlifting meet that you were programming for me. And of course they ended up, it was ended up being like closed because it was full, but like, I felt awesome. And I felt like that was the best I ever looked. I felt like I had the most muscle, um, but I was chasing performance and the byproduct was aesthetics. Yeah. And I think exactly what you're saying. Do you notice, it, would you agree with that statement? hundred uh, percent. It's one of the reasons I, I constantly talk about about training for performance and trying to find performance-based goals um whether it's deadlifts whether it's chin-ups uh whether it's improving your mile time for me for me personally it's just been jujitsu has completely taken over my life it's all i think about it's all i want to talk about jujitsu is just like it's it's i'm obsessed with it and it's made my life so much better so it's why i'm pushing so many more people to do it and to hear from you, you know, g going through cancer treatment, all this stuff, to hear that the biggest thing you missed most was getting on the mats and rolling. I think, I, I think it's, it's going to lead a lot of people to, you know, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to take that step. I'm going to go take my first class. Um, and, and I think one of the important things to remember is if you're going to a good school, which there are a lot of great schools, they're not going to make someone fight the first time they go in. They teach you foundational yeah. movement patterns. And, and like you were saying, communicate with your coach. If you're nervous, say, hey, I'm a little bit anxious about this. Uh, I've been wanting to do it. I listened to two bald dudes on a podcast talk about jujitsu. And, <laughs> and, and I finally got encouraged to go try this first class. But I'm nervous. And they, they'll take you under their wing. And, and they'll be very slow and encouraging with you. Absolutely. And also, too, you, you're going you're gonna to meet friends for life because – it's pretty cool when you can get on a, you can hop on the mat, you're training, you spend, you know, five minutes trying to murder each other. And then you give each other a big hug at the end and be like, that was awesome. Yeah. Like it's, I love the fact that you can, cause there's something very intimate about grappling. Like you are very close to people. You're in very close proximity of people. And it is, you're, you, you have to trust, you have to trust the person you're with because if they're better than you and they can, they can injure you you got to know that they're not going to, and they're going to, they're going to get you to the point where you know when to tap, but they're not going to crank any further. And those are the people you want to train with, right? Those are the people that are going to help you in your journey. And yes, you're always going to have your head coach, but you're always going to find those training partners that you can you know, always go to. Like you can always, there's always those few people. I remember there's a few guys that we used to just, I mean, regardless, we just beat the hell out of each other. I mean, we'd come up, our nose is bleeding, our eyes, that's <laughs> all over our face. I'm like, that was awesome. Like, that was such a good round. Right. I mean, you know how it is. You can leave there looking like you got in a damn friggin' bar fight, but you're there the next day, dude. Yeah, it's it's so odd how how it's it can be so demoralizing and so exciting and exhilarating at the same time. Like in one moment, you might want to cry just because like someone completely just controlled you every like no matter how hard you fought and struggled, you could have done nothing. There was nothing you could do. And then and by the time you're walking out, though, you just feel so blessed. And like it, it really is uh, an incredible art. Yeah, I I, I honestly it, it, like you said, it it's changed my life as well. Like, I mean, just the experience from competing and losing my first like three or four tournaments like, dude, I. I am a sore loser. Like I remember like smashing a remote because I was beating my wife in Mario Kart and like, you know, a Mario Kart when you're ahead, like you're doing your thing and then they get the red shell oh. and then they totally take you out. And it's total bullshit by the way, because it's like a scam because like, I'm a much more technical driver than my wife, but I'd be winning. She'd get the red shell right at the end. And I'd be like, son of a bitch, smash the remote. I'm like, this is an issue. If I, I had to stop playing. Actually, no, we, well, we stopped playing because the remotes were broken, but, <laughs> but I, I hate losing. Like I'm the type of guy I could be on the mats with Gordon Ryan and he would submit me 9 million times in a row with one finger and I'd still be mad. Yeah. That's how I operate because I hate to lose. So for me, it was the losing part was, was a very welcoming experience because you can't blame it on anyone. You go out there, you lose. It's your fault, man. Like, yeah, it's a team sport, but I remember my first competition guy pulled guard i was in his guard for five minutes 
I got out of his garden in three minutes. I had an advantage and I just got swept. And I was like, oh. son of a bitch. Like, and same thing. <laughs> second, second time I fought down in New York, I took the guy down twice, like beautiful takedowns. I was like, yeah. And then he pulls guard and he arms locks me. I was like, son of a bitch. <laughs> and then same thing. The next time I competed, I lost again. And I was like, I'm just going to stop competing and I'm going to go and I'm just going to train. I'm just going to train for six months and I'm going to do everything I suck at. I'm going to start on my back. I'm going to let people take my back. I'm going to get in all the worst positions I can. And that was the best thing they ever did because then I started actually winning. And I was like, okay, like I just literally, I just needed more experience competing because you know this being at your own gym and rolling 10 rounds in a row, we can do it. But that first competition is the most tiring thing you've ever done. Oh yeah. It, one minute of fighting in a competition is, is harder than 10 minutes of fighting in your gym. It's just like the yep. adrenaline dump. You go out there, you have a game plan in your head and then it all goes out the window. <laughs> <laughs> as yeah, soon as the rest of us go, you're and just then, like, ah. <laughs> and then you're done and you're like, you can't move your arms for like, you know, for three hours because you've just got like lactic acid and blood pulling into your forearms and hands. It's, yeah, it's a crazy, it's a crazy feeling. Man, th this has been super fun. I, re I really appreciate you coming on. Can you um, just remind everyone where they can follow you on social media? And if there's anything they can do to support, I I'm sure you, I, I want people to shoot you a message on social media if they if they listen. But if there's anything they can do as well, that would be great. Um, honestly, so, uh, you know, so you can find me Mike Perry on Facebook, um, Coach Mike Perry on Instagram. Um, if you want to shoot me an email, Mike at skillofstrength.com, uh, I'll reply to it. That's where you can find me on social media. Um, and uh, you can also follow our gym account, Skill of Strength, as well. Um, there's some some good stuff on there. I do a little bit more on my personal page. Um, but, yeah, and, and if I'm teaching a course for FMS or for Strong First, I'd love for you to say hello. And uh, and I think if there's anything I could really pass on about this is, listen, man, this this whole diagnosis is it, it threw me a, a crazy curveball, and I never thought it was me. And, and it's probably thinking, there's probably going to be people listening to this saying it's not going to happen to me. And you can't, you can't attack it that way. You have to be smart and you got to take the necessary steps and you got to see your doctors and you got to get your checkups and, you know, stop thinking you're invincible, man. Cause it's, you're not. And, and this is coming from someone who's always been a healthy quote unquote guy. Like everyone's like you, like, I remember when, when I first met the nurses and they're looking through all my files, they're like, you're healthy. Well, like, well, no, I have cancer. I'm not healthy, but everything else looks really good. Right. So, I mean, you can be quote unquote healthy and still get diagnosed with cancer. That's the crazy thing. Yeah. Like I knew some stuff was going on, but I was still lifting. I was still training, but I was just stupidly and foolishly ignoring things a little bit because I didn't think I'd be diagnosed with cancer at 40 years old, man. It just, I didn't think that. Who would? Yeah. No, no, I, no one thinks it's going to be them ever, ever. You know, it's, it's just, it's crazy. Um, bro, thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. I really hope people reach out and shoot you a message. I'll put your your Instagram in the show notes, but I'm going to stop recording and then we'll, we'll say our goodbyes, man. Thank you so much. Sounds good, bud. Thank you.